Key Out of Time by Andre Norton, Chapter 8 This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by R.J. Davis Key Out of Time by Andre Norton Chapter 8 The Free Rovers Twilight made a gray world where one could not trace the true meaning of land and water, sea and sky. Surely the haze about them was more than just the normal dusk of coming night. Ross balanced in the middle of the skiff as it bobbed along the swell of waves inside a barrier reef. To his mind, the craft carrying the three of them and their net of supplies was too frail, rode too high. The Kerwa paddling in the bow, and Locust at the stern seemed to be content, and Ross could not, for pride's sake, question their compensate. He comforted himself with the knowledge that no agent was able to absorb every primitive skill. And Kerwa's people had explored the Pacific in outrigger canoes hardly more stable than their present vessel, navigating by currents and stars. Smothering his feeling of helplessness and the slow anger that roused in him, the Terran busied himself with study of a sort. They had had the longer part of the day in the cave before Locust would agree to venture out of hiding and paddle south. Ross, using the analyzer, had, with Locust's aid, set about learning what he could of the native tongue. Now possessed with a working vocabulary of clicked words, he was able to follow Locust's speech so that translation through the dolphins was not necessary except for complicated directions. Also, he had a more detailed briefing of the present situation on Avaka Key, enough to know that they might be embarking on a mad venture. The citadel of the Foana was distinctly forbidden ground, not only for Locust's people, but also for the Foana's Avakakian followers who were housed and labored in an outer ring of fortification come village. Those natives were, Ross gathered, a hereditary corpse of servants and warriors, born to that status and not recruited from the native population at large. As since they were armored by the magic of their masters. If the Foana are so powerful, Ross had demanded, why do you go with us against them? To depend so heavily on the native made him uneasy. The Hawakakian looked to Kara, one of his hands raised, his fingers sketched a sign towards the girl. With the sea maid and her magic I do not fear, he paused before adding, Always has it been said of me, and to me, that I am a useless one, fit only to do women's tasks. No word weaver shall ever chant my battle deeds in the great hall of Zahur. I who am Zahur's true son, cannot carry my sword in any lord's train. But now you offer me one of the great-to-be-remembered quests. If I go, so may I prove that I am a man, even if I go limpingly. There is nothing the Fiona can do to me which is worse than what the Shadow has already done. Choosing to follow you, I may stand up to face to her in his own hall showing that the blood of his house has not been drained from my veins because I walk crookedly. There was such bitter fire, not only in the sputtering rush of locust words, 
but in his eyes, his face, the wry twist of his lips, that Ross believed him. The Terran no longer had any doubts that the castle outcast was willing to brave the unknown terrors of the Falanic heap. Not just to aid Ross, whom he considered himself bound to serve by the customs of his people, but because he saw in this venture a chance to gain what he had never had, a place in his warrior culture. Shut off from the normal life of his people, he had early turned to the sea. His twisted leg had not proved a handicap in the water, and he stated with confidence that he was the best swimmer in the castle. Not that the men of his father's following had taken greatly to the sea, which they looked upon merely as a way of preying upon the true sea rovers. The reef on which the ships had been wrecked was a snare of sorts. First by the whim of nature when wind and current piled up the trading ships there. Then Ross was startled when Locust elaborated on a later development of that trap. So Zahir returned from this meeting and set up a great magic among the rock, according to the spells he was taught. Now ships are drawn there so the wrecks have been many, and Zahir becomes an even greater lord with many men coming to take sword oath under him. This magic, asked Frost, of what manner is it, and where did Zahir obtain it? It is fashioned so. Locust catched two straight lines in the air, not curved as a sword, and the color of water under a storm sky, both rods being as tall as a man. There was much care to set them in place. This was done by a man of Glickmus. A man of Glickmus? Glickmus is now the high lord of the Iko. He is blood kin to Zahir. Yet Zahir must take sword oath to send to Glickmus a fourth of all his sea gleanings for a year in payment for this magic. And Glickmus, where did he get it? From the Foana? Locust made an empathic denial of that. No, the Foana has spoken out against their use, making even greater ill feeling between the old ones and the coast people. It is said that Glickmus saw a great wonder in the sky and followed it to a high place of his own country. A mountain broke in twain, and a voice issued forth from the rent, calling that the lord of the country come and stand to hear it. When Glickmus did so, he was told that the magic would be his. Then the mountain closed again, and he found many strange things upon the ground. As he uses them, they make him akin to the Foana in power. Some he gives to those who are his blood kin, and together they will be great until they close their fists not only upon the sea rovers, but upon the Falana also. This they have come to believe. But you do not? Carrara asked them. I do not know, sea maid. The time is coming when perhaps they shall have their chance to prove how strong is their magic. Already the rovers gather in fleets as they never did before, and it seems that they too have found a new magic. For their ships fly through the water, depending no longer on wind-filled sails or upon strong arms of men at long paddles. There's a struggle before us, but that you must know, being who and what you are, sea maid. And what do you think I am? What do you think Ross is? If the Foana dwell on land and hold old knowledge and power beyond our reckoning in their two hands, he replied, then it is possible that the same could have roots in the sea. 
It is my belief that you are of the shades, but not the shadow. And this warrior is also of your kind, but perhaps in different degree, putting into action your desires and wishes. Thus, if you go up against the Poana, you shall be well matched, kind to kind. Nice to be so certain of that, Ross thought. He did not share Locus' confidence on that subject. The shades? The shadow? Carrera persisted. What are these, Locus? An odd expression crossed the Evacuacan's face. Are these not known to you, sea maid? Indeed, then, you are of a breed different from the men of land. The shades are those of power who may come to the aid of men should it be their desire to influence the future. And the shadow? The shadow is that which ends all. Man, hope, good. To which there is no appeal, and which holds a vast and enduring hatred for that which has life and full substance. So Zahur has this new magic. Is it the gift of shades or shadow? Ross brought them back to the subject, which had sparked in him a small warning signal. Zahur prospers mightily. Locust's answer was ambiguous. And so the shadow could not provide such magic, the Terran push. But before the Avakakian had a chance to answer, Carrera added another question. But you believe that it did? I do not know. Only the magic has made Zahur a part of Glickmus, and Glickmus is now perhaps a part of that which spoke from the mountain. It is not well to accept gifts which tie one man to another unless there is from the first a saying of how deep that bond may run. I think you are wise in that, Locust, Ferrar said. But the uneasiness had grown in Ross. Alien powers out of a mountain heart? passed from one lord to another? And on the other hand, the rovers' sudden magic in turn, lending their ship's wings. The two facts balanced in an odd way. Back on Terra there had been these sudden and unaccountable jumps in technical knowledge on the part of the enemy. Jumps which had set in action the whole time travel service of which he had become a part. And these jumps had not been the result of normal research. They had come from the looting of derelict spaceships wrecked on his world in the far past. Could driblets of the same stellar knowledge have been here deliberately fed to warring communities? He asked Locus about the possibility of space-born explorers. But to the Havakakian, that was a totally foreign conception. The stars, for Locus, were the doorways and windows of the shades and he treated the suggestion of space travel as perhaps natural to those all-powerful specters, but certainly not for beings like himself. There was no hint that Avakaki had been openly visited by a galactic ship, though that did not bar such landings. The planet was, Ross thought, dimly populated. Whole sections of the interiors of the larger islands were wilderness and this world must be in the same state of only partial occupation as his own Earth had been in the Bronze Age, when tribes on the march had fanned out into virgin wilderness, great forests, and steps unwalked by man before their coming. Now, as he balanced in the canoe, and tried to keep his mind off the queasiness in his middle, 
and the insecurity of the one thickness of sea creature hide stretched over a bone framework which made up the craft between his person and the water. Ross still mulled over what might be true. Had the galactic invaders, for their own purposes, begin to meddle here, leaking weapons or tools to upset what must be a very delicate balance of power? Why? To bring on a conflict which would occupy the native population to the point of exhaustion or depopulation? So they could win a world for their own purposes without effort or risk on their part? Such cold-blooded fishing in carefully troubled waters fitted very well with the persons of the Baldies as he had known them on Terra. And he could not set aside that memory of this very coast as he had seen it through the peep, the castle in ruins, tall pylons reaching from the land into the sea. Was this the beginning of that change, which would end in the key of his own time, empty of intelligent life, shattered into a loose network of islands? This fog is strange, Carawa's words startled Ross to return to the here and now. The haze he had been only half-conscious of when they had put out from the tiny secret bay where Locust kept his boat was truly a fog, piling up in soft billows and cutting down visibility with speed. The Poana, Locust's answer was sharp, a recognition of danger. They're magic. They hide their place so. There is trouble, trouble on the move. To bring on a conflict which would occupy the native population to the point of exhaustion or deep population, so they could win a world for their own purposes without effort or risk on their part? Such cold-blooded fishing in carefully troubled waters fitted very well with the persons of the Baldies as he had known them on Terra. And he could not set aside that memory of this very coast as he had seen it through the peep, the castle in ruins, tall pylons reaching from the land into the sea. Was this the beginning of that change, which would end in the key of his own time, empty of intelligent life, shattered into a loose network of islands? This fog is strange, Carawa's words startled Ross to return to the here and now. The haze he had been only half-conscious of when they had put out from the tiny secret bay where Locust kept his boat was truly a fog, piling up in soft billows and cutting down visibility with speed. The Poana, Locust's answer was sharp, a recognition of danger. They're magic. They hide their place so. There is trouble, trouble on the move. Do we land then? Ross did not ascribe the present blotting out of the landscape to any real manipulation of nature on the part of the all-powerful Polana. Too many times the reputations of medicine men had been so enhanced by coincidence, but he did doubt the wisdom of trying to bore ahead blindly in this murk. Tao and Tina Rock and Gaidus, Karawa reminded him, throw out the rope, Ross. What is above water will not confuse them. He moved cautiously, striving to adapt his actions to the swing of the boat. The line was ready coiled to hand, and he tossed a loose end overboard, to feel the cord jerk taut as one of the dolphins caught it up. They were being towed now, though both paddlers reinforced the forward tug with their efforts. 
The curtain gathering above the surface of the water did not hamper the swimmers beneath its surface. And Ross felt relief. He turned his head to speak to Loka. How near are we? The mist had thickened to the point that, close as the native was, the lines of his body blurred. His clicking answer seemed distorted, too, almost as if the fog had altered not only his form but his personality. Maybe very soon now. We must see the sea gate before we are sure. And if we aren't able to see that, challenged Ross. The sea gate is above and below the water. Those who obey the sea maid, who are able to speak thought to thought, will find it if we cannot. But they were never to reach that goal. Karwa gave warning. There are ships about. Ross knew that the dolphins had told her. He demanded in turn, what kind? Larger, much larger than this. Then Locust broke in, a rover raider, three of them. Ross frowned. He was a cripple here. The other two, with their ability to communicate with the dolphins, were the sighted, he the blind. And he resented his handicap in a burst of bitterness which must have colored his tone as he ordered. Hand in shore, now! Once on land, even in the fog, he felt that they had the advantage in any hide-and-seek which might ensue with this superior enemy force. But afloat he was helpless and vulnerable, a state Ross did not accept easily. No, Locust returned us sharply, there is no place to land along the cliff. We are between two of the shifts, Carwell reported. Your paddles, Ross schooled his voice to a whisper, hold them. Don't use them. Let the dolphins take us on. In the fog, if we make no sound, we may get by the ships. Right, Karawa agreed, and he heard an ascending grunt from Loka. They were moving very slowly. Strong as the dolphins were, they dared not expend all their strength on towing the skiff too fast. Ross thought furiously. Perhaps the sea could be their way of escape if the need arose. He had no idea why raiding ships were moving under the cover of fog into the vicinity of the Foana Citadel. But the Terran's knowledge of tactics led him to guess that this impending visit was not anticipated by the Foana, nor was it a friendly one. And as veteran seamen who should normally be wary of fog as thick as this, the rovers themselves must have a driving reason for some safeguard which led them here now. But dared the three spill out of their boat, trust to their swimming ability and that of the dolphins, and invade the Foana Sea Gate so? Could they use the coming rover attack as a cover for their own invasion of the hold? Ross considered that the odds in their favor were beginning to look better. He whispered his idea and began to prepare their gear. The boat was still headed for the shore the three could not see but they could hear sounds out of the white cotton wall which told them how completely they were boxed in by the raiders. Creaks, whispers, noises. Ross could not readily identify, carried across the waves. Before leaving the cave and beginning this voyage, they had introduced Locust to the use of the gill pack, made him practice in the depths of the cave pool with one of the extras drawn through the gate among the supplies. Now all three were equipped with the water aid, and they could be gone in the sea before the trap closed. The supply net, Ross warned Karawa, 
A moment or two later, there was a small bump against the skiff at his left hand. He cautiously raised a collection of containers and eased the burden into the water, knowing that one of the dolphins would take charge of him. However, he was not prepared for what happened next. Under him, the boat lurched first one way and then the other in sharp jerks, as if the dolphins were trying to spill them into the sea. Ross heard Kerouac call out, her voice thin and frightened. Tao! Tina Ra! They have gone mad! They will not listen! The boat raced in a zigzag path. Locust clutched at Ross, striving to steady him to keep the boat on an even keel. The Fawana! Just as Locust cried out, Carawal plunged over the prow of the boat, whether by design or chance Ross did not know. And then the craft whirled about, smashed side against side with a dark bulk looming out of the fog. Above, Ross heard cries, knew that they had crashed against one of the raiders. He fought to retain his balance, but he had been knocked to the bottom of the boat against Locust, and they struggled together, unable to move during a precious second or two. Out of the air over their heads dropped a mass of waving strands, which enveloped both of them. The stuff was adhesive, slimy. Ross let out a choked cry as the lines tightened about his arms and body, pinioning him. Those tightened, wove a net. Now he's being drawn up out of the plunging skiff, a helpless captive. His flailing legs, still free of the slimy cords, struck against the side of the larger ship. Then he swung in over the well of the deck, thudded down on that surface with bruising force, unable to understand anything except that he had been taken prisoner by a very effective device. Locust dropped beside him, but Carawal was not brought in, and Ross held to that small bit of hope. Had she made it to freedom by dropping into the water before the rovers netted them? He could see men gathering about him, masked and distorted in the fog. Then he was rolled across the deck, boosted over the edge of a hatch, and knew an instant of terror as he fell into the depth below. How long was he unconscious? It could not have been very long, Ross decided, as he opened his eyes on dark, heard the small sounds of the ship. He lay very still, trying to remember to gather his wits before he tried to flex his arms. They were held tight to his sides by strands which no longer seemed slimy, but were wrinkling as they dried. There was an odor from them which gagged him, but there was no loosening of those loops in spite of his struggles, which grew more intense as his strength returned. And at last he lay panting, knowing there was no easy way of escape from here. This concludes the reading of Chapter 8.